It is a joy for me, dear faithful, to be among you again after preaching a week-long mission in another part of the country where I witnessed many spiritual fruits. I must admit one thing that was not interesting for me was the lure of tropical weather in November. I can tell you quite honestly this holds nothing for me. It's always very sad for me to miss out on fall. From my time as a small boy picking apples in the crisp New England orchards and heading inside for hot donuts and cider, to spending long November days in Tuscany picking olives and keeping warm outside with mulled wine, I have always appreciated what the poet calls the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Autumn is truly one of God's greatest gifts to man. The Church has always appreciated this season as well, for she does not waste one moment of it. After celebrating Christ our King and his whole court of heaven, she gently reminds us of the bond of love that unites us to our dear friends in the Church suffering. The drawn-out farewell to warm weather continues with Martinmas on November 11th, a feast which was once a holy day of obligation and a source of universal merriment before the penitential season of Advent. The remaining days of November have always been a preparation for Advent, as the Church invites us to reflect on the gift of time and its looming end. The celebration of Martinmas, to which I have just referred, had been on the decline for centuries. But it was the grim 20th century that dealt the death blow to the joy of a more childlike age. November 11th would henceforth mark the fleeting armistice between the two most horrific wars in history. In the mid-20th century, the Church would even allow Catholics, instead of the Mass of St. Martin, to celebrate a solemn requiem for the millions of faithful departed of the two world wars. Various would-be Caesars had vied for control of our world, and war had swept them all away. Kaiser, Austrian Emperor, and Tsar. Caesar, who is referred to even by our Lord himself in the Gospel, has sometimes persecuted the Church, sometimes tolerated, sometimes supported and fostered, and sometimes sought to rule her. We cannot doubt that this fickle treatment of church by state will continue until the end of time. But what of the end of time? The church alone has a divine constitution, which endures until then. What of the other forces in the world? Holy Writ leaves no room for doubt on this point. In the last days, all obstacles to the reign of the evil one will be removed for a short time. The only guide for the elect during this time of universal iniquity and deception will be the true faith handed down from the apostles. For even large numbers of those who hold the name of Catholic will seem to fall away. There will be evil governments, but an even greater claim on God's rights will be made by ideas 
St. Paul speaks of a false asceticism in those days, attacking the sanctity of marriage for worldly reasons, forbidding foods in the name of a false morality, and exhorting physical discipline and exercise only to give glory to the body. Men of those dark days will no longer render unto God the things that are God's. As Paul speaks to us in his epistle to the Thessalonians at this time of year, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our gathering together unto him, that you be not easily moved from your sense, nor be terrified, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by epistle as sent from us, as if the day of the Lord were at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for unless there come the apostasy first, and the men of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and hath lifted up all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Yes, those days have not come quite yet. But it is in this spirit that I undertake to expound to you a particular truth of our faith, which is necessarily linked to any consideration of the last things of mankind, which the Church proposes to us at this time of year. We shall consider for a moment the figure of Antichrist. St. Jerome, the great master of the scriptures, who comments on the gospel that closes the church year next Sunday, Matthew 24, explains that when our Lord says, when he speaks of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, although this prophecy has immediate fulfillment in the defilement of the temple by the image of Caesar, not long before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we find its ultimate fulfillment in Antichrist himself. According to those very words of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, the end shall not come unless there first come an apostasy and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The Antichrist will be a man. He will not be a supernatural being. Remember that even the devils are not, strictly speaking, supernatural beings. They have a nature different from that of man and elevated above it. They are pure spirits, while man is a composite of spirit and matter. God alone is supernatural in himself. He alone is beyond all created natures. The only way any creature can become supernatural is by participation in the life of God that is, by grace. The good angels and all human beings in the state of grace are more supernatural than the devils can ever be, for they have lost grace forever. And so anyone in the state of grace is more supernatural than Antichrist. We who live in Christ have a power that he shall never have. This is important to remember, for Antichrist will have the strength of all the legions of the devils behind him, whose spiritual nature allows them to act upon the material world, such that he will imitate and mock the supernatural life of grace and perform many signs to deceive people into thinking that he has supernatural powers which exceed 
that of Christ's disciples. As St. Paul told us, his coming is according to the working of Satan in all power and signs and lying wonders. This will be possible because Antichrist will appear on the world stage at a time when the power of the devil will be completely unleashed. This, according to the strongest teaching of the fathers, is the meaning of this mysterious thousand-year reign, which is talked about in the Apocalypse of St. John. In the first centuries of the Church, especially during the Age of Martyrs, this gave rise to various cults who tried to lure in the faithful, having them sign on to their cult so that they could take part in some thousand-year reign which was coming any moment. And in our times, these cults have sprouted up again. This is not the teaching of Holy Mother Church. The Church expounds those words in this way. From the time of Christ's passion until today, the power of Satan has been bound over a mystical thousand-year period. Though he can foster great evil in this world by tempting individual men to sin, he has been unable to take power directly. It may seem to you sometimes that he is already in direct control over our world, but he most certainly is not. It certainly will get worse than it is now. The reign of Antichrist will be the time of Satan's unleashing. In order for this to take place, two things must first occur. First, there must be a total disappearance of the political order that has endured since the time of Christ. Christ speaks in his time of Caesar. The Roman Empire in both East and West will cease to exist, along with every monarchy that claims to rule over any portion of what was once the Roman Empire. This is in wondrous fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, who predicted so many centuries beforehand the rise of all the great empires and the final dissolution of the last, the Roman, in the 20th century. Daniel portrays to us a statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, with two legs and ten clay toes. These are rightly interpreted as the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. The last, the Roman, is depicted by Daniel as those two iron legs mixed with clay and having ten toes, for the Roman Empire would be divided into East and West. Although at least one person in East and West would claim the title of Caesar until the end of the First World War, this empire would already begin to crumble over the centuries with lesser kingdoms, that is, the toes, claiming portions of it. The fourth and last human empire corresponds to the fourth and terrible beast foretold in Daniel chapter 7, and again by St. John in the Apocalypse. This beast and its ten horns will lose their dominion, but they will be replaced for a short time by the reign of one little horn, having eyes like the eyes of a man and speaking great things. Secondly, before the coming of Antichrist, there must be a great apostasy. An enormous number of the faithful in the hierarchy will fall away 
from the divinely revealed truth. This is foretold in that same passage of St. Paul to the Thessalonians and in our Lord's words, there shall come false Christs and false prophets. Those who have fallen away will then join the ranks of those who hearken to the teachings of this last and most terrible false Christ. What of the conversion of the Jews? The coming of the children of Israel to the truth of Christ is certainly an event that will mark the final days. This may occur, however, only after the Jewish people have been deceived by Antichrist, perhaps even embracing him as their long-awaited Messiah. We should not forget that the reign of Antichrist is to be short. Both Daniel and St. John speak of three and a half years. And it is to be followed immediately by the second coming of Christ, who will destroy him. For St. Paul tells us the Lord Jesus shall kill him with the spirit of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And so indeed, as our Lord exhorts us, when these things come to pass, we must look up, lift up our heads, for our redemption is at hand. The end of the world and the end of our own life should not be a source of discouragement for us. After all, what are we doing here as Catholics if our actions do not have eternal consequences? If the Divine Son became man, was crucified, rose again and ascended, sent the Holy Ghost, and instituted the Church and the sacraments just to make our lives a little more pleasant as we make our way inexorably toward heaven, then the Church has no mission, and men have no religion to practice. No, all that our Lord did for us, and all that he continues to do for us through his Church, he did because hell exists, and we might go there. All the things in this life which we refer to as tragedies are nothing of the sort. We know with divine faith and must never cease to repeat to ourselves the truth that there is only one tragedy in this life, dying in the state of mortal sin, leaving this world as an enemy of God. The end of the world is a promise, not a threat. We may very well be living in the autumn of the final age. Or perhaps there is at least one springtime yet to come. None of us knows. But every sweet autumn sent from God should remind us of one undeniable truth. The sun is indeed setting on the life of each one of us. Our particular judgment is at hand. Let us not despair, but take up with renewed fervor the arms of our spiritual combat. Let us run with joy in the race that leads to our imperishable crown. It is true that we have heard the Diesere throughout the month of November, day of wrath and doom impending. But we have also heard the beautifully consoling masses of church dedication for the great Roman basilicas. Our calling is to be saints, to be part of that glorious vision of St. John which closes the New Testament and which we find represented 
on our very side altar. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold the tabernacle of God with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself with them shall be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more, no mourning, no crying, no sorrow shall be any more. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.